0: Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I present to you the Lord Jesus Christ and some of his last words and some of his most meaningful words expressed to his apostles in his last few hours. I want to increase your affection for these five chapters of the Gospel of John. John chapters 13 through 17 cover about six hours from 6 p.m. to midnight when he ate his Passover with his apostles. And these are very intimate words. He was alive with them for 40 days and 40 nights after his resurrection, but we don't read very much about the content of their discussions. But we have here in the Gospel of John what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not give us, and that is his most personal promises and prophecies and exhortations and comforts to his apostles for them to survive his departure out of this world and to enter upon their great ministries. John chapter 14, we have verses 2 and 3 before us, and they are indeed wonderful in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and receive you unto myself that where i am there ye may be also amen Amen and amen in two verses are three precious promises to alleviate the fear of the apostles and to motivate them to service. Jesus had told them in chapter 13 and verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. I've only got a few hours left, men. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, I'm going somewhere the Jews can't follow me, And I'm going somewhere you can't follow me. And Peter is going to argue with them here in just a few verses in verse 36. That Lord I do want to go with you and I think I know how to follow you and I'm willing to do it tonight. And the Lord said you'll follow me later. But not tonight because you're going to deny me tonight. Your ambition is greater than your courage. But let's come back to chapter 14. The Lord wants to comfort his apostles. So he started out the 14th chapter, "'Let not your heart be troubled. "'Ye believe in God, believe also in me, "'because I am God, and we are engaged "'in the same activities. "'My Father has mansions. "'He's prepared for you from the foundation of the world,' "'Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. and I go to prepare a place for you. "'We are engaged in your great success. "'And the comfort of verses 2 and 3 are indeed wonderful.'" These are three of the greatest facts of the gospel to be embraced by all believers. God the Father has many mansions, or living places, in heaven for His children. Jesus left this world not to desert His apostles or us in any real sense, but to finish preparation of heaven. And Jesus Christ will return to gather His children with Him, to be with Him forever and ever. Three promises. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to finish that place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now those facts, and if you look at verses 2 and 3 carefully and consider them, these three facts depend on God alone, our declarations of truth and promises by Jesus. You're not doing anything in those, three, those two verses or those three promises. The only response we need to have is to believe each of them And live accordingly. Of course, these promises only apply to those who have have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... and obeyed Him as their Lord and Savior. Otherwise, these verses don't apply to them. The lesson here in verses 2 and 3 is about heaven. But it's not totally disconnected from the first verse. They were troubled by His departure, so He comforted them several ways. The first lesson was to calm their hearts by faith in God and faith in himself as well as their faith in God. And then, because Jesus is God, and Jesus and God were doing the same works together, and Jesus only spoke the things the Father gave him, and Jesus only did the works the Father gave him to do, they were jointly connected in heaven, and it's eternal bliss and eternal reward for those that follow Jesus Christ. A mansion. It says in the first clause of verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. Now when we read the word mansion, even though there's only one occurrence of it in the entire King James English Bible, we tend to think of some southern colonial home sitting on a hill with a certain number of pillars and square footage and, and a guest house and a pool and a tennis court and whatever else you want to add to it. That's what we think of as a mansion. That is not the main definition of the word mansion in english and it doesn't fit what we have here because it says here in my father's house are many mansions what kind of a house is it that has mansions inside of it that just doesn't make as much sense as what another definition of mansion is and that is a separate dwelling place lodging or apartment in a large house this is our english definition a separate dwelling place lodging or apartment In a large house. And it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. So we have a Father in heaven, and he's got a house, and we know it's large. (laughs) Everything in heaven is large. And we have a dwelling place there, or an apartment in his house. I would rather have an apartment in his house than to have my own mansion. Amen. Amen. And I turn you to Psalm 27, where I get to share with you one of my favorite comforting verses, Psalm 27 and verse 5, and I hope that it may help shed light on in my Father's house are many mansions. There's no other use of that English word in our Bible. Our context helps us by saying it's in his house that we have many mansions. Since the Spirit wrote mansions in a house and not mansions in a city or mansions in a country, We reject the idea of some palatial spread to get the idea of an apartment for us individually in God's house, which is the picture that he wants us to have. We easily take the definition for separate lodging like apartments in a large house. Here we go in Psalm 27 and verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion... In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. So we have a pavilion, which is a very large tent for kings. In the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Here it's a pavilion, it's a tent, but I'm going to compare it to a house. This is metaphorical for this life. That is metaphorical for that life, our eternal life. And it goes on to say, in verse 5, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. Tabernacle is another word for tent. He has a secret compartment or a secret apartment in his tabernacle for me, and that's where he'll hide me. I rest my case just a little bit on why you should enjoy an apartment in the house of God. I want to be in the secret compartment of the Most High's Tabernacle, which is his pavilion in the center of his army with the tents of all the angels in the distance. In every direction that you can look, as far as I can see, I get to be in his tent. The angels do not get in to the pavilion of God. The angels are on the outside. We are the inside circle in heaven. We are the sons of God, and they are our servants, as the Bible teaches us. So there we go with the the mansion. The secret of his tabernacle is not a secret tabernacle. The secret of his tabernacle is a secret part within the tabernacle. And a mansion in a house is not a massive house or a mansion house. It's a mansion within a house. It's an apartment within a house. It's a place, and there's many of them. There are many mansions in heaven, and this use of the plural encouraged every one of those fishermen from Galilee. If it said, in my Father's house, there is a mansion, they would have known who that was for. It would have been for the Lord of glory, and they would have been left out. But it says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And we want to embrace that word because there's a mansion for each of us, each of us individually, are God's chosen people and God's saved, redeemed children. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. He has our names written in the book of life individually, not collectively, not the church of Greenville, not the redeemed of America, not the redeemed of the 21st century, but each of us individually. And there's mansions there for us. And so the Lord thus encourages his 11 apostles that were with him here in this particular chapter while they're still at the last supper in the upper room before they depart because the 31st verse will say arise let us go hence and verses chapters 15 through 17 occur while they walk under a full moon from jerusalem to bethany and the mount of olives and the garden of gethsemane how do i know it was a full moon because that's when passover occurs i'm not an astronomist If God was father of Jesus, in my father's house are many mansions. If God was father of Jesus, and he was, and he is, then Jesus the Son has great heaven privileges. In my father's house. You know, when someone says, that's my dad's house, you know that they have access to it. They may enter that house. They know about that house. They're familiar with that house. They can show you that house. In my Father's house are many mansions. He doesn't refer to them as in God's house or in faraway heaven. He says in my Father's house. As the word of God and perfect in knowledge with his Father, he knew all about heaven and what it had for his apostles. As the beloved and only begotten Son, Jesus had claims by inheritance to everything that heaven has in it. He was going to his father, so he was going home. He wasn't going anywhere against his will. He was going home to be with his father in his house and finish preparation on many mansions for his apostles and those that would believe on their word, which we do right now. We're reading words from one of the apostles. Jesus will pray in John 17... For the first 19 verses he will pray for the apostles and then at verse 20 he shifts and prays for those that believe on him through their word. So we join them together and understand that these words apply to us unless they are strictly apostolic like in verse 26 which is more for them than it is for us in that he brought all things to their remembrance so they could write them down for us. God the Father has a house in heaven. Now the Israelites were nomads. They lived in tents and portable dwelling places. And even God himself was worshipped in a tabernacle, which is a tent, and which he called a tent, and which David was offended about in 2 Samuel chapter 7 because he didn't want his God to have to be worshipped in a tent when the pagan gods of the deities usually had Temples. So David came up with the idea by the leading of the blessed God, the Holy Spirit, to build God a temple. But this is a house, a permanent dwelling place, not a tent or a temporary dwelling place, not a movable dwelling place, but a secure place. If you stop and rightly think about this and these two verses, If you stop and rightly think about this, it would greatly erase earthly troubles and earthly plans. It would change your life. And that is the burden that you're under today. And for the third time today, I tell you that you are under a burden to get rid of every distracting thought, idea, plan, and pleasure that (laughs) takes your mind and your heart away from heaven. Because if your best plans come to fruition better than you planned them, they are nothing in the face of eternal heaven. And yet, I ask you again, in the last 168 hours, how many minutes did you think about heaven? Are you all ashamed with me? Mm -hmm. It's disgraceful. We are so caught up in our little things down here that we forget the great things he has in store for us up there. We are truly pilgrims and sojourners here in this world going to a much better place. The difficulties of a passage or of a trip to a better place are alleviated by the prospect of getting there. When we travel, It is the desirability of our destination that makes the trip there something we can manage. And the better the destination, oh, I don't care about this trip. I just can't wait to get there. We are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. Amen. Oh, I don't care about this trip through life. I just can't wait to get to heaven what is our problem you will sit in a automobile and get stiff and sore and bored out of your mind to go to some little vacation spot you will sit in an airplane seat one half the size of your automobile seat without adequate oxygen you can't move you can't stretch out your legs you can't do anything It's terrible. They don't even want to feed you much anymore. And because you want to go to some destination. And you sit there and you have a smile on your face in those painful confines. Because all you can do is think about where you're going. What is wrong with you and me? You have a flesh. We live in the world. And the devil doesn't want us to think about heaven. Because guess where he isn't going? The devil's not going there, and he knows if you got a vision of heaven, it would change your life on earth, and you wouldn't fall suspect to his temptations. We are pitiful. We. I wish I could just preach this morning you. We are pitiful. Lord, help us. Men have endured all kinds of Atlantic crossings, haven't they, Daniel? Like your father. Mm-hmm. Men have endured all kinds of Atlantic crossings for the prospects of a new world. Right. To enter that harbor and see that statue and to live in, on this continent and in this nation, they endured all kinds of difficulties and they did it cheerfully they left spouses, they left children for years in order to enjoy this country and prepare a place for their families. They were willing to do that. Are we willing to forego some of the pleasures of this life in order to set our affection on a heaven that's coming and to lay hold of it and make our calling and election sure so that we can get an abundant entrance into that city. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. No matter the difficulties of this earthly life, eternal life in heaven is infinitely better. But the issue is, how often and intensely do you think about heaven to alter earthly choices? How often do you think of heavenly benefits to change your earthly choices, your earthly attitudes? This isn't your life. You're on probation in a prison. Mm -hmm. It's pretty comfortable. Don't you know me? You know that I believe that we are the most blessed generation in the history of the world. We have the greatest combination of blessings. We have the greatest combination of blessings ever realized on this planet. Yet. They are a distraction and a delusion and a diversion, and they are dangerous and they are deceitful. We want to get our eyes off them altogether and get our eyes on heaven. Lord, help us to do that. An earthly kingdom was a Jewish fable and fantasy, and the apostles fell for it along with their rabbis and leadership. Jesus promised a life much better to come in another world. The Jews, including the apostles, were obsessed about a natural kingdom. No one wanted a Jesus like the one that came. No one wanted a Messiah like the one that was on earth. They wanted a Messiah that would deliver them from the Roman Empire and reestablish the greatness of their nation. But the one that came saved us from sin, the devil, hell, and death. To give us eternal heaven. He was far better than the imagination and the fables of the Jews. Amen. The apostles are, were still asking Jesus in Acts chapter 1. This is not good for them. But in Acts 1, they still asked Jesus, Will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can see the Lord. It is not for you to know the times, the seasons. Would you just please wait in Jerusalem until I fill you with power from on high? Then you can be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They still had a physical, literal, earthly idea of things that the Lord had to divorce them from. And he did a week later on the day of Pentecost, because then full of the Holy Ghost, They understood spiritual things and that they were part of a kingdom that transcended anything that could be on earth because it's greater than earth. And we've got to get rid of this earth and have a new heaven and a new earth to have the full eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Heaven's mansions should grab our attention and our affection, but we want mansions here. Do you know that about yourself? What did you think about this past week but mansions here of various kinds? Now, this morning I open with 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. Well, pastor, I've been hoping that I could be a Christian businessman. I could have a mansion and be a Christian. I would have hope in Christ and enjoy the best things of this life. If in this life... Only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. We have chosen the worst religion, as I mentioned to you. Because this religion, the religion of Jesus Christ, is based on something unseen in another world, in another time after this life. And if you don't get a vision of it, and if you don't embrace it, you will be miserable because that is what satisfies. And if you're satisfied with a little hope in Christ here and a mansion here, how do you know you're even saved? Right. There isn't any evidence. Because the real evidence of salvation is a love of Christ and heavenly things that changes how you live on earth. Right. Lord, help us. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me again. Let's go over there and look at a few other places of Scripture so that we understand the burden that we're under about in my Father's house are many mansions. 1 Corinthians 15, we began with verse 58. I want a different verse this time. Our beloved brother Paul summarized the whole chapter in the 58th verse, the last verse. After having described the resurrection of our bodies, and the glorified bodies that we're going to have in heaven. He described them in verses 35 through 50. He described our body, what it's going to be like. It's going to be incredible, superior to what you have now. Right. But he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my Corinthian church, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You're not going to get paid on earth. You're going to get paid in heaven. Because the chapter is all about heaven. The chapter is all about the resurrection of the body. So it's a payment that's coming later. But he says, therefore, because of these 57 verses about the resurrection of the dead, my beloved brethren, listen to the news that I'm sharing with you. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know, from what I just told you, your labor is not in vain in the Lord because the Lord's going to come back. And in the twinkling of an eye, raise dead bodies, change those bodies. We shall be changed. It says in verse 51 and at the last trump and we'll be in heaven. And that's our compensation. And it is compensation that can't be measured. How do you measure the percentage increase of that compared to what you can have on Earth? It is immeasurable. Look at Colossians. Well, let's uh, yeah, let's go to Colossians. Colossians chapter three. There's several passages I want us to look at and realize that this is the hope of the believer, and this is important for us to remember. But we tend to forget it, and we can even in the Word of God focus on things that steal our attention away from heaven. So today, especially the first half of today, is for us to be revived about heaven. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, refers to Baptist baptism. That's the risen, because these people weren't risen yet. They were only risen in baptism. And to prove that I'm telling you the truth, turn back a few verses to chapter 2 and verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him in baptism. I'm adding those words, through the faith of the operation of God. Because Baptist baptism has a burial and it has a resurrection. It's the only baptism in the world. The rest aren't baptisms at all. Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ in baptism, if you're a baptized believer, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is how we should live. This is the gospel. This is what the Bible has to say to us. This is the Lord trying to get our attention this morning. Look at these verses. If you're a baptized believer in verse 1, then seek things above where Jesus Christ is. You were baptized in a picture of what Jesus did for you by dying, being buried, and rising again. Since you identified with Christ, then you should be seeking the things where he is. And he's in heaven. Verse 2 tells us that love is a choice. Any love for anything is a choice. Set your love on things above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Do you love some things down here? Come on. I want to see a few nodding heads anyway. I'll do it for you. Do you love anything down here? Oh, yeah. Yes. But we're supposed to turn from those things and set our affection on things above. Verse 2. Verse 3. We are dead to this life. Jesus died to save us from this world and its things, its lifestyle, its philosophy. You're dead. No, I'm alive. I'm telling you, you're dead. If you're a baptized believer, you're dead. What do you think we baptized you for? We buried you in that water. You're dead to rise, to walk in newness of life, to live a resurrected life. You're hid you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Our real life as baptized believers is the Christian life of fellowship with Jesus Christ in God. That's our real life. When Christ, who is our life, Our life is all wrapped up in him who is above at the right hand of God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, that's his second coming, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We're going to be like him. We're going to be with him. What are we doing getting so enhanced, entranced, with the things down here? 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Heaven's mansions should grab our attention and affection, but we want mansions here. A mansion here can be a house, it can be a career, a fit body, well not after first, not after Psalm 139, but uh, you know what I mean. It can be a house here, it can be a career, it can be a fit body, it can be marriage. Family, kids in college, a car, boat, plane, second house. It's tangible, it's visible, and it distracts us. If you can see it, it's going to be burned up. Right. Right. If you can touch it, taste it, smell it, and look on it, it's going to be burned up and destroyed. A mansion can be anything. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, verse 11 says this, and it's the end of a sentence, but I'm going to start there. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we mentioned earlier in prayer, that we would have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. How do we get that abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? Not barely getting into heaven, But getting an abundant entrance into heaven. How do we do it? Based on this passage of scripture, it gives us eight things that we should be doing that prove we're going to get an abundant entrance. We don't earn our way into that entrance, but it is the evidence evidence that that entrance will happen for us. So verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. And this is what we should be doing. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. When anyone hears about the doctrine of election, they want to know, well, how do I know if I'm elect? This is how you know if you're elect. The Bible answers the question in several places. It answers it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 and right here. We can make our calling and election sure. We don't get elect because of what we do, but we can make it sure to our own understanding, heart, and assurance. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly. If you do these things, and if you do them diligently, brethren, you will get that abundant entrance into heaven. What are the things? They're listed beginning in verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. There's that word diligence again, because this is important. We don't want the hope of heaven and to come short of it. We want the hope of heaven and to realize it. Beside this, giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Those eight things. For if these things, in verse 8, these eight things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think you know Christ, if you've heard the gospel about Jesus Christ, it should result in fruit bearing. And that fruit bearing is listed right here. This is how we are fruitful in knowing Jesus Christ, it changes us. We have faith and we start adding to that faith because faith without these other things is dead and the devils have it and it proves nothing. But we add to this faith the things that are listed here. We add virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Verse 9, but he that lacketh these things, uh oh, but he that lacketh these things is blind. And cannot see afar off. He's nearsighted. There are so many near-sighted Christians. Paul would call them belly worshippers because they mind earthly. earthly things, because they can see them. But we walk by faith, not by sight. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He only has vision up close and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins and the whole nature of salvation to give us an eternal heaven. Have you ever been in verse 9? Well, a few of you. I'm thankful to be associated with the rest of you that are always in verse 8. This this passage to me is beautiful. Mm-hmm. We want to be farsighted. Yes. We want to see what is afar off. Can you think of someone in the Bible that was really farsighted? He li- yes, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, I was going to suggest. And he came 500 miles from Ur of the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia, the old garden of Eden. Iraq today. He came and dwelt in the land of Canaan. But he didn't care about Canaan, because he knew that Canaan wasn't anything but a bunch of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. He saw a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. He saw the promises afar off, and he looked for them and waited for them. He couldn't wait to get to heaven. And so that's why heaven is called Abraham's bosom. That's all he ever cared about. He didn't care about that dusty place over there where he never owned so much as to put the sole of his foot on. Except that's what that's what Acts chapter seven says. Stephen said by inspiration that Abraham didn't own any of it, but he did buy a little burial place for Sarah. That he didn't care about that place. He was looking for a city which hath foundations. He was looking for a heavenly country, and that there's nothing heavenly about that place over there. There never was, because Abraham was looking for something better. And we want to have far sight. Right. Do you know what we really want? We want to be blind. Blind to things up close and see only heaven. We want to reverse verse 9 here. We want to reverse verse 9 and be in verse 8. And wherefore the rather, brethren, we want to give diligence, diligence to these eight things so that we have the evidence that we're going to get an abundant entrance into his kingdom. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. I mentioned the words, we walk by faith, not by sight. Do you know the context for those words? I believe that most of you know they're scriptural. We walk by faith, not by sight. What is the context? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. There it is, in parentheses. For we walk by faith, not by sight. There are things that we believe that we can't see. So we walk by those things that we can't see. Verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... That's the body that you're sitting in a pew right now. That's the body that's clothing your soul. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's your glorified body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Remember that the next time you're on the treadmill. Remember that the next time you run a 5K or you're lifting weights. We earnestly desire a different body than this one that we're taking care of. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For verse 4, for that for we that are in this tabernacle, this body, do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, we don't want our soul floating around without a body, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life, that we could get an immortal body for these souls. Now he that hath wrought us God's done something. God's done some work. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. God has made us for another body in another place, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the spirit. We have a down payment. It's called earnest money. It shows that someone is in earnest about making a transaction and a purchase and following through with it with the full price and the full possession it's a beautiful word. Right. We have the earnest money. We have the earnest deposit that heaven is ours. Amen. And these glorified bodies are ours. And what is the earnest? It's the Holy Spirit with us since the day of Pentecost. For 2,000 years, we have God's presence with us to know that we are his. He He sheds abroad his love in our hearts, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, so that we know we're the children of God. He bears witness with our spirits that we are indeed the sons of God and that we have an inheritance But if you quench the spirit or grieve the spirit by sinful living, too much television, worldly music, you will not have that testimony. You will wonder if you're saved and you'll be miserable because your hope will only be in this life. So we walk by faith, not by sight. So when you're working out this body, remember that you have a better body coming and you should be earnestly desiring that body instead of looking at some picture and earnestly... Forgive me and earnestly desiring another body. Are you with me though? I want to be as practically plain as I can be. Lord help us. Second Corinthians chapter five. Do you know why? Because what's coming is so much better. Look at verses 17 and 18. You can't understand these two verses. Neither can I, but let's read them anyway. For our light affliction. Who wrote those words? For our light affliction. That sounds like one of us, for our light affliction. Paul wrote that, had he been shipwrecked more than once, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, in perils. The resume is long, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For our light affliction is what he said which is but for a moment, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more, I love the Bible words, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light affliction for a moment. So in duration, it's a moment. In heaviness, it's light. Compared to duration, duration, eternal. It's weight exceeding an eternal weight of glory. It's heaviness. While we look not at the things which are seen, this is Paul, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Everything in this world, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Thank you, brother Paul, for reminding us of such wonderful truth. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross. This is how you can endure the difficulties of this life, and this is how you can win the victory over the pleasures that seduce you in this life. Like Jesus. For the joy that was set before him. What joy? Heaven's joy. Right. He saw the right hand of God. Hebrews twelve two is where it says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's taken from Psalm 16, where in prophecy, Jesus said, at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Any pleasure you have in this world is very short. And if it's sin, it's called the pleasures of sin for a season. If it's not sin, it's still just a short pleasure. But there are pleasures forevermore. And that's the Son of God saying so. And if the Son of God describes it as pleasures forevermore, how much pleasure will there be? Lord, have mercy and help us. Philippians chapter 3. Quickly, please. Philippians chapter 3. He describes those belly worshippers in verses 18 and 19 of Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul gives us his personal testimony in Philippians 3. He says that he counted all things lost in verse 8. He says he counted them but dung in verse 8. He says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He says in verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We want to prove our faith with good works. Because without good works, your faith is utterly meaningless. It's never saved anyone. Because it's devilish faith. It's faith with works. It's faith that changes lives. It's faith which worketh by love, Galatians 5, 6. And so the apostle here is laying out, I counted everything from my life loss and dung that I might attain the resurrection of the dead, verse 11. And then he says in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me. Live your lives like I live my life. And mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example anyone in this church that lives like Paul should be used as an example and you should follow their lifestyle. And then he describes belly worshipers in verses 18 and 19, whose end is destruction. And I'm going to skip it because I've preached it before. And it's in parentheses anyway, that tells us to skip it to get the main line of reasoning. And that's in verse 20 for our conversation is in heaven. Trust me, the words in verses 18 and 19 are just as inspired as the words in 17, 20, and 21, but for the purpose of a sentence, in order for you to have the flow of thought, follow me and the way I live and those that live like me, and here's how we live, because I want to skip the opposite camp at the moment. Verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven, that is lifestyle, Our conversation or our lifestyle is in heaven. Not shall be, it is already. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So Paul said, we're already living, focused on heaven, and the glorified bodies that we're going to get there. Let's come back to John 14. John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. How do you want God, your loving Father, and Jesus Christ, your loving husband, to wean you from this world? Is there anyone here that thinks you're fully weaned from this life? Thank you. I knew that, but I just wanted you to agree with me. How do you want God, your loving Father, and Christ, your loving husband, to wean you? Is preaching and reading God's word enough? Or you de- or do you need more severe methods? You don't want to say it out loud, do you? Because you don't want God to hear it, but you, He already knows. Right. Is singing about heaven sufficient for your heart and mind? Or do you need more? What would you do to a child sorely distracted from homework by video games? Turn off the video game. Take away the video game. Therefore, when God takes something away or exposes something's faults, weaknesses, or disappointments to us. Rejoice right, right. and be exceeding glad because he's redirecting your attention to your homework. Because where is your home? It's in heaven. Right. Think, health, job, spouse, child, house, bank account, friends. When he takes them away, he's getting your attention and helping you focus on what really matters. God has arranged everything you need to live in near ecstasy for future benefits that are coming. The Bible has title to heaven for you. We just read it. Did you read your title to heaven in Second Peter chapter 1? Make your calling and election sure that's your title. Title to heaven, the blood of Christ paid for it, and the Spirit's the earnest money for it. He's done everything. The church is where you can be comforted and reminded by others that are traveling there with you. We're specifically encouraged to comfort one another about heaven as our brother ended in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You say, I don't need any comfort because I'm pretty comfortable already. That's the problem with America. Amen. Would to God we were a little uncomfortable so that we could be comforted when we came to church with the prospect of heaven. If it were not so, I would have told you, you beloved apostles of mine, that if forsaken your homes, your wives, temporarily, your business to follow me out of Galilee and to be here 80 miles south in Jerusalem and in Judea, you apostles that have followed me and and have been persecuted and will be persecuted a whole lot more, as he's going to tell them in chapter 15 and chapter 16, it's going to get ugly for a few verses as he tells them what's going to come. If it weren't so, if there wasn't a reward like mansions in heaven for you, I would have told you, There is a reward for what I've asked you to do and what you've done so far and what you will yet do with me. There is a reward. I would never mislead you. I would have told you if your prospects of a reward were going to be dampened, disappointed, or come short. There's more than you can even imagine coming. So we understand these words. I go to prepare a place for you. My apostles, forget my departure as desertion of you in any negative way. I leave for your benefit. I go to prepare a place for you. You don't like what I said in verse 33 of chapter 13, because little children, I'm leaving you, but I'm leaving you for you. My departure is for a reason you may lay hold of with selfish excitement. Yourself. I go to prepare a place for you. Not only does God have a place for you, I'm leaving to also prepare a place for you. The Lord Jesus Christ had to go to heaven first to take possession of it and prepare it for us. The Bible uses language sometimes that you may not fully appreciate, but it's there for you to equate it to an earthly situation that is similar. He had to be coronated. We're joint heirs with Christ. That was already mentioned in a prayer. Do you understand that to be a joint heir with someone, he has to receive the inheritance? Right. I've got to go get it ready for you. I've got to go prepare heaven for you. I've got to go take possession of it myself. He had to be coronated, promoted, and receive the inheritance of the universe to share with us. Amen. We are joint heirs with him. This day have I begotten thee. Does not apply to eternity past, It doesn't apply to his virgin conception, the conception in a virgin. It applies to his resurrection and ascension into heaven. This day have I begotten thee. He says in Psalm 2, Acts 13, Hebrews chapter 1, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the world for thy possession. Amen. That didn't take place until Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to take possession of it, and I will finish everything that is necessary for it to be fully yours. You'll be on the title with me when I get done, because my Father has to accept me first as the Beloved, and then you in the Beloved for you to have heaven. We often overlook the necessity of the formal aspects of inheritance, But it says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's obtained a better name than the angels by inheritance. All conditions for us to have the inheritance are guaranteed by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6 tells us all about the fact that we have an anchor for our souls in the promises that God made when he swore with an oath. And we have the earnest payment of the Holy Spirit. It's a shame that a husband's promise would generate more excitement than Jesus in heaven for most people. A husband tells his wife, listen to this example. A husband tells his wife that his father left him a billion-dollar estate in his name. He tells her he must be gone for a year or so to properly prepare everything for her. He explains to her that the estate will be lost if he cannot be gone for a short year. He explains that the estate will be equally her possession if she will let him travel to prepare it. He promises her that all pain and suffering, darkness and discouragement are over. He promises he will, without chance of failure, return for her and perpetual pleasure in his father's estate. He promises he will send a personal ambassador to keep her informed of all things at all times. I want somebody foolish enough to raise their hand and say, well, I wouldn't let him go. Oh, you would let him go. You'd be packing while he finished the last half of that. You'd be packing for him to get out of there and go get that estate for you because he's going to come back. We can enhance this story fabulously beyond what I just did, and it excites every one of us to think about it. Yes, I want you to go. Please go now. Get this one year started. And you know what you would talk about every day while he was gone? Mary Ann, do you know that about yourself? Do you know it about me? Yes, I'm sorry, about the second half of that. We would talk about it every single day. Oh, I don't mind that he's gone because I know he's coming back. And when he comes back, what he's got for us is fantastic. What a shame. Because my little illustration is just pitifully inferior and inadequate for what Jesus has in store for us. That's right. A billion-dollar estate. A billion dollars doesn't do much anymore. You think so? A billion dollars. What does an aircraft carrier cost? What do you think you'd get for a billion? The paint job? A billion doesn't do much anymore. But you know what our Father has? The universe is ours. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. The Bible says the kingdom for believers was prepared from the beginning of the foundation of the world, Matthew 25. The eternal phase of God's redemptive plan included his decree for heaven for you. Yet there was more to do just as Christ had to die in time for those chosen in him in eternity. Forget paint, think coronation, forget cutting the grass. You know, when you read the words, I go to prepare a place for you. You think of someone cutting the grass, but I'm telling you it's coronation. It's taking the inheritance. It's taking possession. It's intercession. The Lord Jesus Christ is there interceding for us, and he's been fully accepted. He is the beloved, and we're in the beloved. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. The first promise. I go to prepare a place for you. The only reason Jesus isn't here in body right now is because he's preparing a place for us, And he's waiting for the last one of our brethren to be born. And then regenerated. And converted. And he will be here. To get us all. And to gather us all unto him. And we shall be together with the Lord forever. Now let's sing about it. And I hope that sitting here in the front I'll be able to hear a little bit. Coming from you. Let's sing about it in those handouts that were given to you. Christ returneth. These promises of mansions in heaven only apply to those that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have works proving their faith to be legitimate faith. But for all those of you that are baptized believers and have works, let's be more diligent in those things and make our calling and election sure, and let's embrace the promise and live in light of it. Amen.